0: Before we get started, I want to talk about sponsors that help make this show possible. I've partnered with swimming companies that can serve our international audience. I'd like to introduce our newest sponsor, Swim Angelfish. Swim Angelfish is an online certification program that strengthens your teaching curriculum to serve swimmers of all abilities. Swim Angelfish will prepare you and your instructors with the skills to teach swimmers with autism, physical disabilities, anxiety, sensory and motor conditions, and more. Learn to teach skills faster and with more comfort with Swim Angelfish. Apply for an only alpha pool product scholarship and receive up to 50% off your certification. Go to SwimAngelfish.com today to apply. One of the best ways to build power in the pool is by using a tower. I got introduced to Chuck Destro. Because of the way Chuck designed them, they can break down and ship in a much smaller box so they can ship anywhere in the world for a reasonable price. Use code BRETT at checkout and save $150 on a double swim tower. That means if you order two, you can save $300. Order four, save $600. Go to DestroMachines.com to get your team stronger in the water today. Looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system? Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using Superior Swim Timing. You can use Superior Swim Timing with your existing equipment or they can provide you with a complete timing solution including deck harnesses, buttons and starter. SST is fully compatible with Hi-Tech and Team Unify as well as Colorado, Dactronics, and Amiga touchpads. Go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more And be sure to tell them I sent you. Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching you swim it live in real time. Go to SwimPractice.com to learn more.
1: Welcome to Swimming's Best Talk Show. Gonna learn all the things that Brett Hawk knows. As he has a chat with his guests about what it takes to be the best. But the sport's about more than just best times. It's winning the battle against your mind. So listen in and let's take a dive with Brett Hawk
0: as we go inside. All right, Simon Cusack, all the way from quarantine in Darwin, Australia. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, of yourself? Doing well, mate. Thanks. Sir. I appreciate you doing this. No worries. Plenty of time on my hands at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> now, you told me, uh, t- talk me through what you guys do every morning again.
1: So uh, from about uh, 8.30, we have temperature checks. And then at, at 9 a.m. sharp, we start uh, one hour of uh, PT class where... We've got just about all of the staff uh, lined up on consecutive verandas and um, a number of athletes have started joining us too now. And we do one hour of 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off with um, generally about uh, 10 exercises and, and roll through that six times and uh, then then sp- spend the
0: rest of the day trying to recover. <laughs> <laughs> And you guys are just stuck in kind of like a, a, a real quarantine where you're just on your balcony. You're not allowed off the balcony.
1: Correct. Yeah. So um, we're in Howard Springs, which was set up as a uh, as a mining camp. So um, each room self-contained and uh, has its own little balcony. And we're not supposed to leave our balcony unless we're um, every other day we can do washing. So um people tend to find small items to just to take down to the laundromat so they can get a few steps up for the day.
0: <laughs> I love it, mate. Well listen, hey, first of all, congratulations on another fantastic uh Olympic campaign for your crew and then um the best Australian swim team in history, mate. It must feel pretty good to be part of that. Uh yes, mate. Yeah, it was a bit of a Goldilocks uh year this year and um
1: I've been around for long enough to know that they don't happen that regularly. So I was, uh, I was able to really, really take it all in and enjoy it, and um,
0: and uh, you know,
1: um, fully celebrate everybody's successes.
0: Yeah, mate. It really is interesting to think. Even just a year ago, the possibility of it not happening was so real. And and even and even if you did think it may happen, you weren't even sure how you were going to get there. You know, based on. Some of the things that were happening within each everybody's countries, you know, like in terms of just training, how how do you get ready to perform at an Olympic Games? Um, talk me through just quickly some of the challenges you faced in the last year in in getting the girls, specifically uh, the Campbell sisters, ready for the Olympics.
1: Yeah, so um, we were very much ready for for 2020. Uh, Kate Kate was in very good shape. For the 2020 Olympics, um, Bronte not so much. She was um, she's been carrying injuries uh, for a, probably since about late 2015, on and off. Um, so for for Kate, it was probably a big disruption having the Olympics postponed. For Bronte, it was a blessing in disguise. Mm. Uh, so it was a double-edged sword there. Now once once the Olympics were cancelled, um, you know, and we all went down into lockdown in Sydney. It soon became fairly evident that um, Sydney was probably one of the, the um, worst places to prepare within Australia, as in that when COVID got away, it, it really got away. So then you know, we decided to relocate back to Brisbane in December of uh, 2020 and uh, rebase ourselves back up there at Chandler again for the remainder of that prep. So... Uh, You know, I've had to juggle injuries with those girls for for years now and um, so it was pretty amazing really that they could both make their their fourth and third team and um, and then, uh, you know, once again win that four-by-one gold and uh, both be part of it and Kate uh, come away with an individual bronze medal, which is how she started in 2008, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, mate, it's uh, pretty remarkable. I saw she put something out the other day that I I didn't really fully know and appreciate that you'd been coaching her basically since she was something like eight years old, like, uh, you know, 20 20 years or something. Is that right? That's right. So
1: um, Bronte was seven and Kate was nine when they walked into uh, the pool that I was coaching at back then, Indooroopilly Swimming Club, and uh, that was 20 years to the day. That they won the four by one gold medal in Tokyo.
0: So um, yeah, it's uncanny. It's it's crazy. I mean, to think of it. Uh, I mean, to think that you were coaching seven year olds first of all, and then and now you're coaching Olympic champions, world record holders. That's that's insane to think of. Just even your progression in that sequence. But how do you end up being able to manage? uh you know sisters first of all uh all the way through their their entire careers how were you able to move with them through that process
1: i think um some good advice that i was given uh years ago by scott volk is probably um it would have been 2006 when kate broke her first national age record and uh, he told me back then um stay one jump in front of your athletes or be prepared to lose them um and so that's, that's something that I really took to heart and I took every opportunity that was presented to me um, for, for uh, professional development and, and upskilling and, um, and uh, just managed to be able to play another card all the way through their careers, um, you know, other than uh, injury or um, periods where we had um, glandular fever and, and subsequently post viral fatigue in 2010 we haven't really had too many stagnant years so uh or unsuccessful benchmark meets so i think that i I really took that to heart to to be um
0: never rest on your laurels and stay one jump ahead in terms of just coaching both of them how have you managed to um coach sisters like this to to this level it's kind of unseen and probably uncharted territory for for most people so it's not like you could go and ask somebody so you're you're learning as you are going, I, I imagine.
1: Yeah, learning. I I had uh, I grew up with two sisters um, who were were quite different, had quite different personalities. Um, Kate and Bronte have very different personalities. The only thing that they've got in common really is the fact that they swim and they come from the same parents. Um, <laughs> but but uh, you know you've you've got um, Kate's very much uh, uh, a um, empathetic person. Um, can be quite emotional. Is a real feeler. Will always consider others' needs before her own, and uh, which it's you know, it's probably been uh, a little bit detrimental to her career as an athlete. But um, but we love her for it. You know, she's always been the protector of the of the uh, the pride, and um, and she's always put team first. Um, Bronte bronte on the other hand uh she's very much a team player but from a young age she was a she was a a calculated i used to call her the calculated assassin so from a young age she wrote down a list of athletes that she wanted to bump off and um and she worked her way through that list until she won dual gold in 2015 at kazan so they're very they're, they're very different girls um they've utilized each other's uh drive for training to motivate each other um you know they've competed head to head many times and uh in and out of the training pool but there have been some times when i've just had to separate them put them in separate lines because um you know one's got superior strengths to the other and and um in some regard and and, and uh and vice versa and other aspects So. It has been a juggle, mate. I
0: didn't. There was no book on it. Uh, I think we've just got through it. Well, you've done a fantastic job with, it, mate. Yeah, I love the. I love the fact that she had a kill bill list. Did she ever have Kate on her kill bill list? That <laughs> she just wanted to take her down. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Kate, <laughs> Kate was
1: number one. So after after twenty thirteen, <laughs> so she was up there. She was top of that hit
0: list. Oh god, I can just imagine Christmas uh, lunch at their place. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome, mate. Um, wow. Uh, well, just in terms of of you, I mean, you've got some history yourself. Uh, I believe it's some family history in terms of swimming. Talk to me about some of your history and and your family lineage. So uh, my great uh, uncle was Arthur
1: Cusack, and um, he, uh, he leased swimming pools um, along with other things. I think he had a pub at one stage, but... But his passion was swimming and he leased the swimming pool in Maribor, and then later the Centenary Pool in, uh, in Brisbane and then went on to become the, um, the state director, uh, coaching director of Swimming Queensland. Along that way, he had, um, along the path, he had a lot of uh, very uh, well-known champions, including uh, David Thiel, a, um, the dual uh, backstroke um, Olympic champion he also coached my father to the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City and uh, where he teamed up with um, uh, other guys, including Mike Wendon, to win the bronze medal in the 4x100 freestyle. Mm. I, think, I think Dad placed about eighth in the 100 fly final um, after getting a belly full of Mexican water and subsequently getting gastro. Uh, <laughs> 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 so it wasn't the best meet for him, the, the greatest memory. And then... Um, yeah, so I've had uh, Arthur was a coach. My father um, went into coaching after after spending about four years working for local government as a as an office clerk and being bought out of his brain. So he started at Swimming Club in uh, 1977, and uh, his brother coached and other cousins coached. So it was uh, a lot of Cusacks on the swimming scene and. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, growing up in and around swimming, it was the last thing I had on my mind. I was never going to be a coach.
0: How, how'd you end up getting pulled in, sucked into it, mate? Like, as we, we we all do, but how'd you do it? Yeah, so I um, I
1: left school and did a carpentry trade, so um, four-year carpentry trade, and finished that. And as a young guy... Um, I'd, I'd grown up watching uh, John Wayne movies and um, I, I love those westerns. So once I had my, my trade ticket, I um, started working my way through the bucket list. And one was to um, cowboy in the Rocky Mountains in Montana and live in a log cabin. So I'd had some horses growing up and um, anyway, I managed to get a, uh, a nine-month visa um, as part of an ag exchange program. Did a year in Montana and then uh, came back and did another year as a stockman in the, up in the north, northern Australia, um, contract mustering. And the wet season was rolling around. It was about late September of uh, 1999, and um, I, uh, I rang home, checked in. I used to check in once a month, let them know I was still alive, hadn't been bucked off a horse and landed on my head or anything. And uh, and my father said. What are you going to do when you come back and i said oh, i'll probably just have a take a break and then come back up um contract mustering and the next season and he said oh could you could you give us a hand as an assistant coach um uh he said my uh assistant has just uh given up on me she's she's um pregnant and you know suffering some ill health so i said i'll oh, i'll give you three months and that was uh october 1999 and um <laughs> And I just enjoyed it and got bitten by the bug and then and it sort of grew from there. I started out doing, um, like most young coaches, doing Learn to Swim and, uh, you know, the straight correction and the junior squads and then uh, gradually I think about 2002 or thereabouts was um, handed over the the National Age Programme, which was about as high as the standard went in the uh, in Indooroopoulos swimming club back then, coaching out of a six-lane, 25-metre pool.
0: And then, yeah, just, just progressed. Well, I mean, the, the progression is incredible. To, like I said, you know, you're know, now one of the leaders of, of the world's, um, one of the leading programs in the world, the, the Australian swim team. So in terms of like going from the man from Snowy River to one of the top coaches in the world, Coaching multiple Olympic medalists, what's the in-between there? So you've obviously had some incredible mentors that have helped you along. Just just like myself, um, we've all got a path that we've gone down. But um, you know, going from Indrapilly, who were the people around you that helped develop you into kind of the man you are now? It's it's interesting that the the,
1: the people that impact you in your life there's sort of been multifaceted. Um, so if I go back to my uh, the days that I was working, you know, spending twelve hours a day on a horse, um, we had some some great mentors in that area, and and it was around that period where the, all the the natural horsemanship was coming in, and a, and a lot of that was around um, um, basically skill acquisition in the in the horse industry. So rewarding um, a, a positive. Uh, uh, oops, sorry, positively reinforcing the correct movement, and then gradually building it up into a sequence mm-hmm. of movements. So I, I took a lot of that into swim coaching. Rather than you know we we came through the era where um, if you wanted to go faster, you, you just trained harder, and and that was always the guilt trip put on you that if you if you hadn't achieved your reward, you had to basically get or you, your result, you had to um, toughen up and go harder next year. Mm-hmm. There was there was that aspect of it. I think um, initially when I came back into coaching, I did everything um, that I knew from a swimmer, and um, and that led to great results um, in the first couple of years uh, because I, I took over a team that my my father had done a great job with um, with the the whole uh, skill act and technique side, and and basically flogged them um, in yeah. plain teams, got them fit. And, uh, and that was very, very successful and until they reached sort of their, their late teens towards the end of high school and then every single one of them, um, you know, departed from the sport that basically we'd, we'd, were out of cards to play. So um, after a couple of seasons of that, I, I really started to try and explore um, better ways to do things and that that sort of coincided with um i had a lot of senior swimmers give up i had some younger people um coming through including the likes of um of kate and i sought out people like uh shannon rollison uh, Mm -hmm. who was um had you know jody henry and and alice mills Mm -hmm. and uh, a host of young sprint girls at that time and was able to get a a two-week training scholarship through ask our, our coach association with him and uh i'm a very visual learner so so just watching those girls train very much cemented in my mind that time um you know correct uh sprint freestyle technique and also just seeing them what they are capable of doing in the pool not only in the pool but in the gym was a big eye opener to me um you know, there was there was a lot of talk in the late '90s about strength being overrated, and uh, you know, if, if what you couldn't achieve on a theraband, what sort of wasn't worth, or we had bungee cords and all that back then, wasn't worth getting. So, so I just started down my own journey in many regards I, because I didn't have any older swimmers, and it was a, a smaller club. I had no pressure to um, to really uh, have kids perform at national open level. And I remember at the time saying, "I don't know where this is going to lead, but I, I certainly like what I'm seeing." And we just I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, and and um, almost got in a sweet spot there. And and uh, and I think also back then that that realization of um, the the need for a, a speed base. So you know, if at, at that stage I was trying to set Kate up for breaststroke. Strangely enough, and uh, and she was a national age um, finalist at 12 in the under-13s in breaststroke and, and went on to, to win states and all that sort of stuff. I think she went about 35-4 at 12 for breaststroke, which was pretty good back then. Wow. But then after um, she was playing handball one day at school and dislocated her hip and then went on to have um, surgery for a label tear, so then breaststroke was out and uh i thought she didn't like going back didn't like doing backstroke so i i looked at what um shannon's girls were capable of doing and then i thought well there's there's the benchmark until we can we can um uh beat them over 50 meters there's no point pursuing the hundreds so that's that's the journey we set off in and um and you know basically any it it was a 25 meter pool so um i don't know whether you ever tried to coach you know middle distance and over swimmers in a short course pool but man it does your head in no not me yeah so so, well i'm the same i don't have the attention span Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah, that's the direction we set off in, and and the whole focus at that time of the club went to to um, basically hundred meter and, and down swimming, and and um, a few people left because of that. You know, um, kids of triathlete parents and and Ironman parents, and all those people that that preach from the Bible of speed through endurance. And um, anyway, I had a core cool, core cool group of kids going, and we we kept
0: moving in that direction. This is interesting. I didn't realize we are going to go in this, this direction, but I like where it's going. In terms of running a club and having a speed-based program set up, how early is too early? You know, you're, you're talking about coaching younger kids. In America, the theory is, you know, still to this day throughout America is, you know, you go through endurance. You you know, you train for the 200 free and the 500. Uh, the No, the... 400 i am and the 500 free that's kind of the theory in america that that's what everybody trains and then once you get to college you can specialize in things like that but sounds like you went earlier than that in terms of the specialization or maybe just even the the type of training you were doing how young is too young to start training for the 100 sprints yeah well I, i think um
1: uh From a young age, what I didn't target was the likes of uh, lactate tolerance or you know what they now call um, power anaerobic power um, so it, it was more around uh, speed development and um, and and also seeing, Seeing uh, speed as a, as a not just a, um, a velocity thing, but a technical thing. So it wasn't just about forward velocity measured through the water. I Always gave them um, technique parameters. So the young ones, for instance, you know, if if they were sprinting, we did a lot of twelve and a halves back then because it was a twenty-five meter pool. If they were sprinting, um, I'd often get them to do uh, you know like fingernail trail or mm. what I used to. Call polish that sort of stuff so there was always a technique parameter added to so they weren't just in there spinning their arms as fast as possible um and then i I would never do anything to exhaustion so as soon as the technique failed or was looking like failing i'd 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 cut that off and um you know it was unique i guess at this time but as i said I, i grew up with swimming i I um, I got six fourth places at national age championships. I I know what it's like to be fit and not have speed. I know what it's like to grind and not have talent. So I just wanted to do something different, or else I wasn't I wasn't going to stay in coaching. It had to be just stimulating to my
0: brain as well as the athletes. Yeah, man, I'm totally with you on that one for sure. Where did um in america they call it yardage where did where did yardage come into this in terms of how you're structuring your workouts so um
1: if i look back on uh what kate was doing for um say in 2008 uh she was sitting at around 15k a week now that's i know that's ridiculously low but also um uh, you've, you've got to understand that she'd had two lots of hip surgery by then. Um, I could get about um, 800 metres of kick total, that includes legs with swimming, a week out of her. So so I had to break that up into basically two 400-metre sets um, and the rest was done pull. Well, you you can't do much more than... You know, at at fourteen, fifteen, uh, when you got someone with levers that long, you can't do much more than fourteen k pull a week unless you you want to start them short stroking and, and swimming like an endurance swimmer. So, um, yeah, it was it was more the quality. I always looked at the the quality component, how much uh, race specific work I could get out, and um, and
0: just tried to make a fist of it like that. You know. The injury side of it with her specifically was that was that because of her frame. I mean, she's she's got a very unique frame for sure. I mean, she's very tall, very lanky. Um, was she just having issues growing? Um,
1: she's the the ligaments in her uh, hips were very loose. Uh, that's a genetic thing. Bronte also had issues with her hips. She had hip surgery as well. Uh, I think for Kate. Um, You know just yeah being a very very long person um she also suffered we were doing a training camp in beijing a year out from the olympics uh with the queensland academy of sport and um we were time trialing there one day at the the beijing institute and she got up on a block that we hadn't previously used in the in the preceding sessions and when when i started her so when basically when the gun started um she um, took off and the block top was not fixed down mm. and the block top came off and she landed um, basically in the water on her front with her with her, um you know arms back sort of in a crouched position and and her head extended and she had whiplash from that as an injury mm. um, she spent the rest of that that trip till we got back to Australia uh, in a neck brace which was the um the advice at the time and that that hip in, uh that um that whiplash injury um that damage never went away and uh it still plagued her the other day in tokyo so um you know she's she's had a, a lot of the injuries are her stories to tell but she's had numerous injuries and and some of them have come about from probably just the revolutions of of uh, training and compounding over, you know, four Olympics and and others have come from um, from uh, you know man-made stuff through operations. <laughs> right
0: now, did they play other sports growing up? Did you encourage or discourage that at, at the time? Um, they they played uh, Bronte played a little bit of water polo, as
1: in just for school sport in primary school. Um, but, uh, no, Kate didn't really do anything else. I, I was neither here nor there. I didn't discourage it, but I think, um, you know, they came from a family, excuse me, where they had um, a severely uh, handicapped brother and uh, which took a lot of um, uh, the mum's time. So, so you know, she, she was uh, already very stretched, um, just getting the kids to school and swimming. and um, so I think that was basically became the chosen sport for the family and and they the family very much invested in the swimming club um, with uh, the father. Uh, Eric, he became the treasurer for 11 years and um, and was was a brilliant help there and and mum used to come up and work the canteen and sell togs and all that
0: sort of stuff. so so um, yeah right you said something a little earlier that i want to come back to that interested me because because i kind of have a similar theory you said speed base what did you mean when you said speed base so
1: you know when i when i started looking at um world-class 100 meter swimmers which is the direction that i was pitching kate for at that time uh most of them were capable of basically double their 50 meter um pb plus four seconds it was around about that that was that was their limit and um i i think the the um the extremes were about double fpb plus 3.7 or so seconds and uh through to to those that were more 50 up to 100 might have blown out to, to four and a half or or more that was the parameter i was looking at so i knew um you know back then that that um, until their fifty-meter speed reached a certain level, there was no point chasing the hundred and and being a world beater. So that was sort of um, uh, where where we concentrated on. Now I, uh, that was just my my way of working it out. I've seen other other champions produced um, in um, you know very different preparations. I've seen. You know, I've watched Emma McKeon grow. She's been involved in the National Event Camp, uh, Women's 4 by one which I've been running since 2013. And and um, uh, her route to the top has been very, very different to my girls. So, um, you know, there's there's many ways to skin cat.
0: Mate, it seems to me that the whole world understands how to get a woman to swim 54 in the 100 free. Um, Again. A few countries in the world understand how to get a woman to swim 53. It seems like Australia is the only country in the world that's figured out how to get multiple women to swim 52. What is it that you guys are doing down there that is so different to the rest of the world right now?
1: I think um, knowledge sharing is a big key. Um, One thing I've tried to do with running the uh, women's sprint uh, at the national event camp is is uh use sets that i see as being key for preparation and then use those within that training week so so those assistant coaches and and coaches of other uh athletes within that group can can see and understand how those set design uh, evolved and came about to start with Mm. Um, you know I've, i've never been one to um to hide uh what i was doing i don't believe in in secrets i think you know if you if you think you got secrets um yeah good luck to you you probably think you're a guru as well um but 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 i think one of the things we've done in australia is very much you know all that information then is disseminated out through um all coaches involved at that level so so um for instance, you know, uh, Michael Boyle can have access to what I was doing. Uh, I can have access to what Dean Boxall's doing with Ariane Titmus, and and you know, um, Vince Raleigh can have access to to um, other programs, and, and we can have access to what he's done with Zach um, Stubbley Cook. So I think that that's a great strength in Australia, we're, we're very much recognise that um, we have a limited population we have uh, a limited um, talent pool and we really have to try and try and get the most out of what we're working with and um, and I think we also we celebrate the fact that um, it's it's less less about secrets and more about what type of coaching personality that athletes are drawn to when they're choosing their program or they or they have long-term success within a program um, that'd be. That'd be one big part of it. The second part is that it's so damn hard to qualify for our women's four x one that that uh, when they do, um, you know, as far as there's not many certainties in sport, but it's you're fairly certain that you're going to come away from the benchmark meet with a with a good result if you're part of that women's four x one.
0: Yeah. Someone pointed this out to me, and I didn't notice it until they did just recently. But it seems to me that None of the Australian women are swimming with a straight arm, where a lot of them, maybe the Americans and some of the others uh, are doing a straight arm freestyle for women. Is that correct? Are the, are the Australian women not doing any straight arm at all?
1: No, I can't remember the last time I saw someone swim straight arm in Australia, as, as far as the women go. You know the uh, you know the men we had that that run with with or and, and then Eamon Sullivan and um, and Ash Callis. Um but I can't remember maybe Yolan Cookler, who qualified mm. for the 2012 Olympics. Uh she used to go to straight arm a bit. That's about the last one, I think.
0: Is there any reason why you guys have gone in that particular direction? Obviously it's working. So why why go back to is it do you call it a bent arm freestyle? Or is that what you're calling it? Um I
1: I don't know. I just call it freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I them,
0: but, but I guess <laughs> it, let's just call it Ben arm Freestyle. And so is, is there a reason why you are just coaching that style? Uh,
1: I, I prefer to um, have that. Um, to me, it's aesthetic, aesthetically more pleasing. I prefer to have that relaxed recovery, not that you can't relax a straight arm recovery. Uh, I think possibly the... Um, the entrapment of bubbles in the front of the straight with straight-arm freestyle is a slightly higher risk. But, um, you know, I think, to as humans, we're great copiers and and generally people will copy what's in front of them. So if there's no straight-arm freestyle stars uh, in the country going around, well, then the younger ones coming through probably aren't going to want to
0: be that way. Right. Without giving too much away, what, what are some of the other secrets, man, because, like, Look, you got you got girls from at fifty one in the hundred free, which is insane. But just a lot of fifty twos, and it's just so impressive. And I think people are just like blown away with what is going on. So, um, what else? I mean, what else are people missing that are just 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 obvious?
1: Yeah, I think I think for sprinting, um, one of the things that uh, I've tried to do well, and one of my philosophies was around. Um, Automaticity and performing fast regularly. So mm. right from a young age, um, I tried to freshen um, someone like Kate each time we raced, whether it was just a local meet or or a state or national level meet. And and uh, I think that was enabled a, a faster progression as well. I think um, when sprinters come off um, a really high workload. The the stroke mechanics is so far and the feel is so far removed from how they then feel tapered. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think, you know, unless they they taper, race a meet, and then go on and maybe do World Cups or something where they're getting that constant exposure for a number of uh, repetitions, I think by the time, you know, if they taper for a meet, perform well, go and have a break, come back, go back through their endurance phase, the um the likelihood of them going a step above the following year i believe is is um is limited but you know plenty of people do it too and i i I, one thing i will say was that uh it's probably has been a bit to our detriment the fact that um that kate dropped so many 52s in season i mean Mm. the, the world the, it wasn't like she was doing them once every year or once every two years or, or four years. The the world used to see her doing it regularly. And and I think that that um that raised the bar within um women sprinting yeah. um worldwide, which which you know if, if from a selfish point of view probably came back to bite us on the backside a little bit. But um but then you know sports greater than the result of one athlete isn't it i think i i think she's she's been she set the benchmark for since 2013 when she dropped 52-3 to win in barcelona and uh she's had girls chasing her and beating her occasionally um but not that often yeah since
0: that. yeah Mate, how big of an influence was Jacka on you? I, I know he's had uh, tremendous success in in the areas that we're talking about, sprint and and female sprinting in particular. Was he uh, of help to you as well? Um, Jacko's philosophy was um, quite different to mine,
1: and um, and it was interesting when when he first came over and saw what I was doing. He thought that I was working them too hard, and um, probably doing too much race pace work uh year round Mm. and then i remember um so he started before not too far before com games in uh, 2014 and then uh it was after after com games in 2014 uh after the women's free he said to be you seem to know what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> In his funny Dutch sense of humour, you know, and then he goes, "I understand what you're doing now." And he, I think, coming out to Australia, he was able to appreciate um, the the diversity of the programs that we have over here, and and how that's a strength of ours. Um, you know, it, it, our programs are chalk and cheese, and some of them are, are so. Uh, extreme on opposite ends of the spectrum, but producing results in in same events. So uh, Jacko was very influential. You know, for a number of years we were talking about changing the timing of our trials, and uh, and it started to gather momentum. You know, we we had uh, twenty seventeen uh, sorry twenty twenty uh, go back it was twenty fourteen trials. I had two athletes at, um, at the trials ranked number one in the world, and they were injured 16 weeks later for that benchmark meet. And one of the issues that we had back then with the time of our trials was that you had to be, say, women's freestyle, you had to go top two in the world to make, to grab an individual spot. So you had to be at your absolute peak at trials. And then you had to be at your absolute peak sixteen weeks later, and um, and so that was that's a long time to continue pushing the body. Um, so you know we we tried to then have that discussion, particularly after Rio, around um, having that that, that five week turnaround between trials and um, and the benchmark meet. And Jacko was able to get that over the line. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's also been a major um, contributor to the performances of our team um, over the last couple of years. You know, you, you're choosing in form athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take um, a huge amount of work to keep them fit for that time. Yeah. you can stay in touch with their with their form, and uh, there's less time for for injuries and. That sort of stuff to go just, you know, creep in and and uh, adversely affect performance. Uh, the other thing, the other plug I'll give Jacko it was he was very good with uh, discussions around senior athletes and, um, you know, particularly after 2016 with Kate, for instance, uh, we've always had policy in Australia where if they weren't selected for the following benchmark meet, they were off funding. So. We were leaning on our big hitters every year to to stand back up again and uh, and get medals for the nation and therefore secure funding. And uh, after Rio, you know, Jacko was um, through conversation. You know, he said, "Well, she doesn't have to swim next year. Why? Why would we expect her to swim next year?" And just hearing those things was absolutely refreshing coming from um, the national head coach. And it was because he'd coached senior athletes or athletes that it had longevity in the sport mm. that um, that he was able to uh, you know draw on that on his on his wisdom from previous experience and uh, it was good
0: yeah yeah for sure um, you, you talked about something of interest too you, you talked about um, doing a lot of race pace work and then Jocko having a different philosophy and saying that you may not be resting enough in terms of recovery in your program how much race pace are you doing and when are you recovering within a weekly cycle type thing
1: yeah so generally i'll be um three times a week i'll do race pace and and they're they're the big um, the key sessions um you know they vary uh, quite a bit in what they look like and and yep. also i'll change them um day to day as to what i see walking into the pool Mm-hmm. um that afternoon as far as energy levels of the athlete um uh now i uh, you know I've, I've seen a lot of programs over the years i've seen programs that do five main sessions a week and and uh and that's that's fine as well uh i think at the end of the day the way i look at it is you you've got you've got one cup of energy to draw on i try and get one third of that energy out three times a week, and and if you go five mains, well, then you're going to get you know one fifth of that energy out five times a week. So, right. I think the the speed component that I was looking for demanded um, uh, more recovery and and less main sets uh, in in my the makeup of my programs.
0: All right, gotcha, gotcha. Mate, people are going to go mental if I go through this whole um, you know interview and I don't ask you just. One specific set that you could share with us that uh, maybe Kate Kate has you know killed in the past or Bronte is there is there any particular set that you like to hit with them that you've had success with? Uh, probably a, a good set that
1: that I've used in the past where it was um, uh, later on in the prep was a suited set where we'd go uh, a max hundred dive or, or push. Um, in this prep, we couldn't do a dive because one had a back injury and one had a neck injury. So then you're limited. So we both we both started the set push. But uh, yeah, max a max hundred push, and they they were sort of pushing uh for that one at that stage of that camp. Um probably 53 and a 54. Is this and long then time? and then um they were suited, and then uh I think from memory they were on about that hundred was on about three minutes and then we went into uh, they had to achieve uh, five fifties at uh, faster than back end speed and um, on the two from memory they were on two minutes to two thirty and um, if they missed one they'd just get some extra rest and then they'd you know they'd, they'd go again until they'd achieve five so that was that was pretty what's, solid
0: back end speed that they want to come back in so, so uh, at that stage, they I wanted them uh, feet leave
1: to hand touch. I mm. wanted them twenty six four or faster okay. for, for Kate and twenty six six or faster for Bronte. Is this long course? Yeah. Wow. That was long course. Yeah.
0: yeah. Pushing fifty threes or fifty four lows. That's that's pretty nice to see that. Yeah, that you know
1: you build up to get to that state too. So, so I'd um, yeah they've been recovered the day before and and uh there was a lot of emphasis put on that set.
0: what about in terms of tapering the girls um do you do a longer taper with them or a shorter taper what are you looking at
1: Uh, yeah i've always gone a longer taper uh generally around um the three-week mark um and I think that's probably been reflective of the the volume of intensity that they've had to endure throughout the prep. Um, and very often it's taken every bit of three weeks um, for them to get up again. Uh, with the five-week turnaround, it's normally a little shorter. Second time around might be around the two-week mark. Mm. Um, but uh, I've had a fair bit of success uh, with that three-week mark with the, with the sprinters. Um I know you know i've I saw other guys on our team taper two weeks for their sprinters and and that worked well as well. I think it's always just about the preceding load that you have to take into effect and how long you think that's going to take for that that super compensation um to come through and and their recovery to um uh relative to how how much you've stressed that central nervous system,
0: yeah. Now, I understand you were looking after their strength and conditioning for a long period of time too. Did you give that up at some point? Uh, I looked after their
1: strength and conditioning until we went to um, work for n Swiss in two thousand and nineteen, mm-hmm. and that was primarily because I'd had um, a I'd had good success with it, uh, but b when I went down to Sydney. Um, there was only two swimming programs at that stage and uh, N-Swiss were very keen to get their, their um, S&C guys involved in the program, you know, from a learning perspective as well. So at that stage, I handed over the S&C and then uh, took it back up basically when we moved back up to, to Queensland in uh, 2020 for that the remainder of the prep into the Olympics. Oh. Uh, they've always had um a number of physio exercises due to their their makeup and the amount of injuries they've carried they've always had uh lots of of physio based exercises which i stayed right out of they were sort of far beyond my expertise um but the key lifts that i thought were were important um to their swimming i always kept in
0: yeah mate just on that i'm a maruba boy um you know I grew up in the in the heart of Sydney down there on River Beach what's going on with my with my state man why why is there not where's all the Olympians gone like, what, what's going on in Sydney man there should be a, a plethora of young talent coming through what's happening
1: well uh, the first thing I'd say is that um, they had uh, three Olympians on the team four if you count Jess Hansen who's training at the AIS but uh, three three swiss athletes on the team and uh they come away with a number of medals so okay. that's the first plug i'll give them all right. Swiss. all right um as far as um uh the development of talent down there it's it's um it's an interesting one I, I think that a lot of energy and effort's been putting in uh by swimming new south wales currently to try and overcome this problem um, I think uh, after living down there for two years, that, that there's a lot of challenges uh, that none say more than um, just the population density, as in uh, I could have a talented athlete living 10 kilometres uh, from the pool that I coached out of and they just couldn't physically, um, unless they were out of school, they they couldn't physically come and train with me because that 10-kilometre kilo, um, drive in the afternoon mm. Take them an hour in traffic. You know the population in Sydney has just grown to the point where um, it it just becomes gridlocked. So yeah. Yeah. it's it's a very restrictive thing. Um, and I think also if if you go back to um, days of old in Sydney, and and this is this isn't just Sydney. I mean this is this is Queensland as well. Um, North Queensland used to be a powerhouse. I mean, these a lot of these public pools were leased by um, by coaches so that they could make a living for their family, but primarily secure lane space to pursue their coaching um, careers. And and now most of our public uh, pools have been taken over by leisure companies. So um, where for those leisure companies, the bottom line is the dollar. Um, their their money comes from um, chips ice cream, lap swimming, and learn to swim. And no one has any interest in basically giving up half of their pool or a third of their pool in, in peak times to pursue high-performance swimming. Um, the The private schools, I think, are doing their fair share of lifting with trying to um, uh, develop their swimming programs. And certainly the schools that are involved in down there um, like Knox Grammar and uh, and PLC Pimble Ladies College had invested a lot into upskilling their coach uh, coaches and um, and trying to retain their their uh, their good swimmers and keeping their head coaches one jump ahead of their athletes. Um, they're looking at all options down in New South Wales. I think the I would say that the the future will be regional hubs. Um, down there just to get people out of that, the restraints, the constraints of the city.
0: Yeah, right. Mate, um, well, Kate's coming off her fourth Olympics, I believe, and, and Bronte's obviously had success and coming through a lot of injuries. What, what's your gut feeling on their future? Are they going to kick on from here or have you got the sense that this could be it? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not sure.
1: Um, I would say at this stage they'll they'll definitely kick on. As to um, how long they kick on for, probably will depend on the the um, you know well um, the nature of swimming across the world and how COVID continues to affect it. I think the um, the ISL uh, stuff was was a very good um, um, a very good uh, program for keeping those older swimmers around, those that could swim for cash and and uh, and You know maybe stay around for the sprint events and relays just to give them longevity keep them in the sport possibly for another olympic cycle um uh you know world cups isls it's all a bit up in the air at the moment and then you, you have to quarantine you've got to pay if you're coming back into australia you've got to pay for your own quarantine you've got two weeks of downtime stuck in a box like we are currently so there's there's a few detractors as well so um Look, I, I think for now they'll swim on, and then they'll just um, have to. None of us can foresee the future, and they'll have to uh, work it out as they go along.
0: Yeah, can you give us a brief idea of what's going on with this Australian uh, professional league?
1: Um, <clears throat> no idea, really, mate. Other than probably what you've what you've uh, read, or I I think uh, I don't have the exacts on it, but. Um, that would be available through through our head coach, um, but I think the the strategy is to have a number of teams uh, within Australia, and they they compete on a an irregular a or semi-regular basis, um, and uh, there'll probably be a bit of a draft pick so that the teams are even, you know, for for the sake of um, close racing and and um, Improving the spectator potential, yep. but other than that, mate, I, I can't give you a lot more.
0: Yeah, right. What about you, mate? What's your future? You're you've got a couple of weeks here locked down to to unwind and appreciate what you've just done. But what's coming up for you?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll um, like every other coach on the team. I'll go back and have discussions with um, with current employers and uh, in Swimming Australia and and see. Um, what the new strategy is going to look like they're, they're talking about having a, a hub system so see um, uh, where I fit in with that and um, I'll, I'll be involved in swimming in some some capacity. I'm, I'm not sure where I'll be placed at the moment but over the next coming uh, months we'll um, we'll find out more.
0: Good stuff mate Well uh, just before I go. Um, the world was kind of smacked in the face with, uh, Dean Boxall and, and his achievements and, and, um, his celebrations. And look, I've known Dean for many years and he's a, he's a good bloke. Um, love to see him have success just from your point of view. Um, you know, what's he doing well?
1: Uh, I think Dean, Dean has a lot of energy. Um, he, he brings a lot of energy to his program and, uh, and, uh, you know that that flows through to his athletes. I think uh, he he runs an exciting uh, exciting program. He certainly challenges his athletes, um, and uh, you know it's there. He's, there's obviously success there at the the swimming club at St. Peter's. Um, the the principals there, number of principals over the years, have invested heavily in the swim program. So. You know, longevity in any program is key. There's been, whilst there's been transitions from head coach, um, from previous head coach Michael Boll, uh through to Dean Boxall, all the underlying um, development layers are still there. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, longevity, I think, in in sport is, is key and also... Um, the fact that that the school should be given kudos for the fact that they've been able to Mm. uh, maintain a firm direction for a uh, probably since, really since 2003 when Michael Boyle first went there.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, mate, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for sharing. And um, I'm so glad the internet held up on us today. uh, It seemed like it went flawlessly, so I'm pretty excited about that. But, um, yeah, it's good to see good people having success, mate, and uh, congratulations on everything.
1: Thanks, Hawkey. Nice chatting. Yeah, mate. Take care, all right? See you, mate.
0: See ya.